Our psalms, plural, this morning, come from Psalms 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have come over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise him with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our Old Testament lesson is from the prophets of Jeremiah, found in the book of Lamentations. We're reading from chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord, he is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do come to you expectantly to place our hopes in you. In all the midst of the conditions of our lives, wherever we stand today, we know that you are our one true hope who can revive and renew the discouraged and the weary, the downcast and the depressed. 
And so we ask that you will come and speak and minister among us, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, while serving as a church planter, I found myself flat. I was physically worn out and spiritually discouraged, spiritually despondent. I had encountered discouragement before in my spiritual life, but nothing up to this level. Nothing like the inward conflict that was raging within me, the despair that I was feeling, just a general sense of hopelessness. And then, to top it all off, the seeming absence of God, that he just felt miles and miles away. The psalmist captured my feelings rather well. As many of you know, I found a rich treasury in the Psalms. It was during that period of life. And when the psalm reads, my soul is downcast within me, it was perhaps the best expression of my interior feelings, that I was downcast. I was despondent. I was dismayed. I was depressed, and I didn't know where God was in the middle of all that. And so I was preparing sermons for the summer, and Psalm 42 and 43 were part of the task that I had to prepare, and I knew that I wasn't quite in the place to be preparing that sermon because I didn't yet own this. I didn't know what to do about my spiritual despondency. And so I decided to listen to a sermon. I listened to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson, who is now the retired uh, minister at First Presbyterian church in Columbia, South Carolina. He's Scottish, so everything he, sound, he says sounds better. During the course of the sermon, though, he quoted uh, from a collection of letters that were written by John Newton. John Newton was the evangelical Anglican minister from the 18th century. He was part of the great awakening that took place across the pond in England. Newton was the former slave trader who also has written some of our most famous hymns, Amazing Grace, and even one we sang earlier in the service today, Great God from Thee. And Newton, in his letters, he was not known to be a great preacher, but he was a very fine poet and writer. And he interacted with hundreds of people about their spiritual condition. And so while I was listening to the sermon, I googled the book, as we can now do with all of our technological command at our fingertips, and I ordered it. It was quickly to me, and then over the next months, I read through Newton's letters. Some of them were extremely boring, and then some of them extremely pertinent to the, my own experience. He wrote a letter to Mrs. Wilberforce, who was a close relative of the abolitionist, the Christian abolitionist, William Wilberforce, and listen carefully to what Newton writes. He says, when young Christians are greatly comforted with the Lord's love and presence, their doubts and fears are for that season at an end. But soon as the Lord hides his face, they are troubled and ready to question the very foundation of hope. Assurance grows by repeated conflict, by our repeated experimental proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save. Now, the words were jarring. Because at this time, in the middle of my spiritual despondency, I was assuming that there was something wrong, that I had somehow sinned against God. But what Newton was saying was, yes, that could be the cause, but spiritual despondency and our response to it is part of Christian maturity. That spiritual despondency is something that every Christian will encounter. And what we find in Psalm 42 and 43 is no particular sin of the psalmist. 
but rather just the context of being weary in a world that doesn't share his faith commitments and doesn't believe in his God and doesn't worship in the same way that he does. And friends, the important thing to recognize is that spiritual vitality and maturity must learn to deal with spiritual despondency. That the path towards maturity and vitality, in fact, is through despondency, is what what John Newton was saying. And so it became clear that my spiritual health, that our spiritual health, that it hangs on dealing with this despondency, that it hangs on dealing with this discouragement, that it hangs on dealing with the depression that can strike us all in our relationship with God. And so as we read through and consider Psalm 42 and 43 this morning, it's important for us to answer the question, how is God a refuge for us in the middle of spiritual despondency? How does he come to our aid? How is he a rock for us when he seems distant? Psalm 42 and 43 is really one prayer. It's united by a common theme. And then this refrain that we see in verses 5, in verse 11, and then once again in verse 5. Our translators chopped it up for us, not particularly helpful. But we find inside of these two psalms, God dealing with us in the midst of despondency. And there's four main moves that we find here. So let's follow along carefully. First, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 42, we see that we must have the right prescription for our problem, for what we are suffering from. Verse 1, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? One of the most fascinating things about these verses that's helpful for us is the psalmist recognizes what is lacking in his life. He has the correct prescription for his problem. And his lack is the lack of the living God and abiding in his presence. And that lack is felt as a desperate desire that he longs to be back in fellowship with God, communing with him, hearing from him. And friends, our hunger and our thirst in life, that wanting that lives inside of all of us, it is that thirst that disturbs us. It is that thirst that drives us in life. That hunger can only be satisfied by God. Augustine captures it well in the very first chapter of his famous confessions where he says, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And what the psalmist knows, the wisdom that he possesses is just that, that only God can address the thirsting of the heart, that only God can address the wants of the human heart, that only God can address the hunger of the human heart, that there's one answer. And friends, when we have the wrong prescription for our problem, we will find ourselves hungry over and over. We will leave wanting. Many of you are familiar that earlier this year, my seven-year-old daughter was diagnosed with a tumor. That came as a surprise to us. We had no clue that that was what was happening inside of her body. On Saturday evening, she came in and she was nauseous and sick and complaining of stomach cramping and pain. And it was during the flu season where half of our congregation was literally wiped out by the flu. 
And so like good parents, we told her to go back to bed. And, uh, and then we put her in containment. We were quarantining her, keeping her away, especially from daddy, because he had to preach in the morning. And so the next day, then things had not really subsided. So we took her into the Minute Clinic, and the Minute Clinic, she came up negative for the flu, but they said, you know, we get a lot of false positives, and so she probably has the flu, so she was put on Tamiflu. The next day, things had gotten somewhat better, and then they worsened. And so we decided to go to the emergency room. This is now Monday afternoon. They begin checking out. They become suspicious of a few things. And by about 11 o'clock that night, we received the diagnosis that our seven-year-old daughter had a softball-sized tumor that was benign growing around her ovary. And uh, we were so weary at this point and tired. I looked at the doctor and I said, so I guess we can cut the Tamiflu. That doesn't treat this at all, does it? We don't need to worry about that at this point. Tamiflu doesn't treat tumors, does it? And friends, this is what we so often do, though. We have a problem. Our problem is that we're cut off from God. We're spiritually despondent. We're depressed in our relationship with Him. And yet we try to fix it with all kinds of prescriptions. And this is the wisdom of the psalmist, is to know that the only prescription that addresses the human heart and the soul and all of its hunger and all of its want in all of its drive, the only thing that addresses that is the living God. And so we can try to address that in so many different ways. We try to answer that hunger and that want with relationships with other people, whether it's with a spouse or a community of friends. We try to find what is lacking there. We end up disappointed and only furthering our thirst, furthering our hunger. We can do it with possessions, but of course those fail us because they grow old or that they're in there, there's something else that we need. We can do it with our children, but they are incredibly corrupt and they will disappoint us every time. <laughs> and we can do it with our achievements. We can set out for more education. We can set out for further, further attainments in, in our field of vocation. We can do all kinds of things. But at the end of it, it will maybe satisfy us and satiate us for a small period of time. But it comes up empty. We have to have the proper prescription for the problem. And the prescription, as we look at the world, is that God has made us for himself. And that incredible hunger and thirst in life can only be answered by God. And so we have to learn to look to him to be the right prescription. Now the second piece to this when we recognize that God is the prescription for this hunger and want, that he's the answer to our despondency, is that we must speak openly to him. And many people, when they read the prayers of the Psalms, they blush and think, I could never pray that honestly to God. But listen to the open and frank speech that we have here in Psalm 42 and 43. Follow with me. In verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. Verse 5, my soul is cast down within me. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And then chapter 43, verse 2, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? It's honest speech about the emotional state that the psalmist finds himself in. And what we find here is an invitation that God frees us to enter into this dialogue. 
in which we bring our honest feelings, that we don't have to clean them up, we don't have to polish them, and we bring them sincerely and forthrightly to Him, stating just where we are in our emotions and how we feel, and that we're free to do so. Francis Schaeffer, the founder of Labrie, wrote this about the psalm. He says, God is omnipresent in a poem that complains of his absence. And ironically, the pain of separation is a way of feeling his presence. Now, friends, this is the genius of this psalm, that in acknowledging the pain of separation, in acknowledging what feels like the absence of God, it is the way of drawing near. Perhaps you've had this interaction with another human being. It's common amongst spouses, where one will come to the other and say, I'm lonely and I feel distant from you. Now, that can be heard one of two ways. It can be heard as a critique. You're distant and there's something wrong with you. Or it can be heard as an appeal. I would like for us to draw near. And that's what's happening in the psalm. The psalmist is honestly expressing himself, bringing himself before God. He has the freedom to do so, knowing God's steadfast love and commitment to him. And he's crying out to draw near, to remove the impediments, to be brought back into fellowship with God, for the light of his face to shine upon him. And friends, you have the freedom to do so. When God adopts you and brings you into his family through Jesus, When Jesus is your mediator and vouches for you in the heavenly places, you then gain the right to call upon God as Abba Father. You gain the same privilege and access that Jesus himself has. And he welcomes you into that prayer. And so you have this freedom because of the grace of God to approach God with this honesty. You can come to him in all of your weakness. You can come to him in all of your sin. You can come to him in all of your discouragement. You can come to Him in all of your despondency. And you can honestly bring your prayers. This is what we find. This is the God who is a refuge for us. Is that we can be honest with Him. The third piece to this, of God being refuge for us though, is that we must minister God's truth to our divided heart. There is a refrain that connects these two psalms. You find it in verse 5 and verse 11 and then once again in verse 5. The refrain reads this way, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's curious. The psalmist speaks to himself. He has a divided heart. He's despairing, and yet he also knows the promises of God. He knows the steadfast love of God. He's had experience with that. But now he's in a moment where he feels distant from God, separated from Him. And he summons himself to hope. It's a form of self-talk going on here, where he's conversing and arguing with himself, having this discussion. We find it throughout the psalm. If you look in verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's recalling the three annual pilgrimages that happened inside of the Old Covenant 
where the people of the Israelite nation would journey to Jerusalem to participate in the feast. And the feasts were not just times of celebration of God's gifts inside of creation, but they were the celebration of God's work to save them. They were the affirmation of his mighty acts. It was bringing these covenants of God to mind and furthering their trust in this living God. And the psalmist remembers, he brings it to mind, all that God had done for him. And he's summoning himself to hope here. And friends, in the middle of our despair, when we are disquieted, when we are disturbed in our relationship with God, this is what must happen, is that we must be around the truth of God. And we must argue with ourselves. We must have this conversation. We must summon ourselves to hope because of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And though subjectively we may feel very distant, We must turn to the objective truths of what has been announced in Jesus, what God has done for us, that he's canceled out our sins, that he's granted us a new freedom from the power and control of sin, that he promises us a new world, that it is unshakable and accomplished, that it's been finished in Jesus. Because yes, subjectively, we can wander far. But friends, God's truth is objective and accomplished in Jesus. And for all who trust in him, this is what is true of us. And we must return to it over and over. Morning by morning, Jeremiah writes in Lamentations, that the mercies of God are new. And so we turn to him for this fresh work and renewal. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's the famous minister of Westminster Chapel in London. And he wrote a book entitled Spiritual Depression. And this is what he summarizes. He says, I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. And friends, that's the art form that we have to learn. We have to speak from God's truth to our divided heart. And we have to remember and we have to press hard. And it's not a magic bullet. It doesn't just happen in the first encounter. This was obviously a rather violent affair for the psalmist, and it can be so for us as well, and it can be prolonged at times. But it is trusting that the truth of God has the ability to penetrate the heart and the soul and summoning ourselves to hope, remembering the great favor of God that he's given us in Jesus, all that he has done on our behalf. As a young pastor, I had an important encounter with a young lady in my congregation that time she was dealing with, uh, with infertility and it had particularly uh, struck her down. And she had questions for God. She had questions about herself. And in the middle of it, she had f- fallen into such despondency. And we were talking through passages like this from Scripture. And I made the appeal to her. I said, you need to remember the promises of the gospel. And she looked at me and she said, I need you to tell me those promises. It was a very vulnerable and humble moment where she's saying, I know them, but I need to hear them. And for this young pastor who was very much learning his craft and his trade, it was a very deep impression left to never just say you need to remember the promises of the gospel, but to press those promises in that God is for you in Jesus Christ that he will not forsake you and leave you. Yes, that you will go through subjective moments where you feel distant from him. 
But it is in that distance that he is accomplishing something and he is working in you. And he wants you to drive down deeper into all that he is for you in Jesus. That's what he's doing when his face appears to be hidden. Tell me. Remember. Speak them to one another. Speak them to yourself. We must minister to the truth to our divided hearts. The final piece to this, God being our refuge in the midst of despondency, it's found in verse 4 and then once again in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 43, is that we must put a priority on public corporate worship. There is something intensely individual about the psalm, but then there is also something very distinctly corporate about it. That yes, we are to have this inner conversation, but these psalms were also used for the corporate worship of the people of Israel. And so when we find the refrain, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. This is like the bold print in your bulletins. This is what the congregation would have sung. If you were in the sanctuary and joined in the worship of God, this is what all the saints around you would be saying. And they'd be pointing you to the truth together. And friends, this is the great consolation of joining in corporate public worship and not just being left to ourselves. And that we're reminded of the truth of God by the people around us. And we're pointed to that truth, especially when it's hard for us to believe. Because there are days where our unbelief creeps in and it disturbs us and it can nearly destroy our faith. But then a brother or sister announcing their faith in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Despite all the ways that you feel, you'll find that to be the most affirming and comforting and encouraging thing as you enter into this assembly to worship week by week, Sunday by Sunday. But oftentimes when we feel despondent, we do just the opposite. It is the despondent who tend to withdraw. It is the despondent who have good, plausible, passable excuses for why they are removed from the regular worship of God's people. But in the end, it isn't the real reason. They feel guilty. They feel unworthy. They feel apathetic. They feel like they shouldn't be there because they're a phony. But friends, it is just in that moment where despondency then has you in its grip. And what you desperately need is to enter in with God's people and to be reminded by the truth along with them. We have to cry out to God as the psalmist does. If you follow with me in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 43, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. This is the call to God that He send forth His light, the revelation of His Word, and that He lead Him, that He bring me to His holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Friends, that is joining with the corporate work of God's people. It's enjoying the festivals of God. You see back in verse 4 in chapter 42, where he is talking about the procession in the house of God. It's deeply corporate. And in the middle of despondency, this is so essential for us that we not be left to our own devices that we have others speaking the truth to us, that we have the congregation celebrating the great truths of the gospel. And even if we feel on the outside of it, that we hear it, 
that we listen carefully, that we receive it, and we trust that the God who sends out His light and truth can pierce our own despondency. It is through the conflict. It is through the spiritual discouragements and the spiritual depressions that spiritual maturity is found. And it's knowing that there is a rock and there is a refuge for you in all the different emotions of life that you experience. And that your God is there. And He is ready and waiting to renew and revitalize you as you wait upon Him. And so speak openly to Him. Minister the truth to your divided heart. Prioritize public worship and chiefly know that He is the prescription to the problem. Don't go looking elsewhere. And friends, you will find Him a sure and steady refuge who ministers to your soul. Let's pray. Father, we recognize the fickleness and the frailty that lives within us. And we can feel any number of ways and we can feel far separate from you for many different reasons. But we trust that you are the one who is a refuge and a rock for us, that you have the power to renew us. And so bring all the truths of the gospel to mind. Seal them to our hearts. May we have the freedom to speak openly to you. May we prioritize joining with the great assembly of your saints and worshiping Sunday by Sunday. And will you teach us and train us that you are the one answer to our hunger and to our wants. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.